grades went in this week and like on each grade if they did really poorly like you're supposed to put in a little comment of like what happened right like, explaining it right they didn't turn it in they were there but were sleeping like they just really had a bad day taking the test whatever mm-hmm. so for all the absent ones i just like copy and paste absent right complete for credit did not complete and just bam 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 all the way through my grade book uh-huh Two days after, like, I go through and do this, a kid goes, um, Dr. Greenwood, who's Sylvia Rivera? Oh, my God. (laughs) I had copy and pasted something from my podcast notes into, like. Oh, my (laughs) God. Hundreds of grades. (laughs) (laughs) This is classic Allie. Allie's just. I don't even know what to call it. Favorite thing to do is to text the wrong group chat. And this is with a magnifying glass. With a magnifying glass of like inappropriateness that that is so. And also for like, it's not like it's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or like some like political fic. And Sylvia is political, but it. Isn't that so funny? Transgender activist. (laughs) That like that is unbelievable. Like it was. Was it like a full on sentence about her? No, it was just like a it was like a phrase. Like a full phrase that I had like copied off of Wikipedia. And it was actually it was nothing like inappropriate or like out there. Yeah, it wasn't like me being like at the shit, you know, like that would have been terrible. But I was just thinking about one of the quotes about like I don't know, because like a lot of activists from that time period have quotes about like well like they're a sissy and i'm a transvestite and like yeah. you know using the terms that they used back then and i was yeah. thinking of like it's one of those that yeah, is that going to be a wild real bad thing but no, to explain. Then I, it just took forever to go back and yeah. check every <laughs> single comment so that was my ridiculous story for the week uh, I love that. Anyways, we were talking about Sylvia Rivera last week. Right. But that's not what we're here to talk about this week. No. <laughs> this is her story. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women from history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> and we're not historians. Yes. <laughs> we copy and paste from Wikipedia. Uh, as yes. per previous conversation uh, do you ever do that and you look back and you're like and you're like in the middle of reading and you're like what the hell is this uh-huh. and like <laughs> i feel like you can always tell because it's in a different cadence than uh-huh. when i'm just typing oh yeah like i should have rewritten like this. what is this <laughs> sentence so yeah for sure for sure but everybody is like so busy right now absolutely you you're- are I don't know. On a jog? You're on a jog. You're swimming out to sea to free those container ships. Oh, my gosh. You're somebody's got to do somebody's it. Somebody's got to do it, baby. Everybody's going out and doing um, things. So you're doing that. You're prepping. You're running. You're swimming. Who knows? But either way, you can't look at your phone and look up what these women look like. So to give you a picture in your head while we're telling their story, we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what do she or they look like? Well, we're both doing groups Mm -hmm. of young girls today. 
The girls in my story, their names are Addie Mae Collins, aged 14, Carol Denise McNair, aged 11, Carol Rosamond Robertson, aged 14, and Cynthia Dione Wesley, age 14. These four beautiful little girls were each African-American. The popular photos we have of them are like the school photo mm-hmm. style, like the headshot dressed in your Sunday best. They each have a very sweet smile and inquisitive eyes. Addie Mae wore glasses and wore her hair up in this picture, while Cynthia, Denise, and Carol had shoulder-length hair that was curled under at the bottom. In other photos shared in documentaries and on websites, you see just typical little girls that are full of life with an assortment of bows and pigtails and dresses and uniforms that are typically wrinkly and it's really cute because you know they're out there (laughs) just being little girls Mm -hmm. the four of them are just precious and young um and denise mcnair specifically who was 11 just looks like such a baby (laughs) so who are you doing and what do does she or they (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so i am doing the chibok girls um, these are too many girls to name. Um, I'm, I will like say some of their names as they kind of come up in the story. Um, but these 276 girls, um, were between the ages of 12 and 17 years old when they were captured by Boko Haram or kidnapped, I should say. Uh, they are from Northern Nigeria and before the events of April, 2014, um, they could probably be seen in brightly colored traditional Nigerian clothing. I just feel like whenever you see pictures of Nigerian women, they're always in like these super bright outfits. Oh yes. I, 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 it's so cultural. Like you can even see, we have a big Nigerian population in Maryland Mm -hmm. and you can see like on Sunday when the women are coming out of church, it's just like this rainbow of it's so beautiful yeah I we um had a Nigerian family in my church and I was super close with the sisters and I loved seeing pictures of them going to like Nigerian weddings because they have these like kind of like really big like head wraps that are just gorgeous and just all the outfits are so pretty um but after they were kidnapped they were forced to only wear gray and black and like those kind of tones um before you could see their full faces with big smiles but Afterwards, they looked somber, and if you could see their faces at all, um, because they were forced to wear um, veils, some of them in just hijabs with long robes, um, you know, they just, they looked really sad if you could see them at all. Um, And regardless of what actually took place during their capture, many of these girls had intense scars, uh, some physical, um, some lost their limbs, some maybe lost their lives or really don't know. Um, but definitely all of them, if they are rescued, escaped, or still captured, they have uh, really intense mental and emotional scars. Um, and, and yeah, that's what they, they look like. We really don't know for some of them. And then I do know that a couple of them who did escape and went to college, who we'll talk about, like, they walked across the graduation stage this year yeah. in caps and gowns and like they were being interviewed and one had this like really cool like leather jacket and so like literally like some of them are still looking like they are captured because they still aren't some of them are looking like regular college students here in America so right. it's a really it's a real range but it is and I think it's a really good time to say that if you um are really if it's gonna really 
be hard for you this week to listen to stories about the loss of children, Mm -hmm. then it is okay to put a stop to this podcast. These stories are both really difficult and Mm -hmm. deal with um, racial and religious tensions and trauma around Mm -hmm. the world. And they're both really in recent world history. And it is, I mean, I've been bursting into tears all week doing the research. So has Katie. It is emotionally draining. So Mm -hmm. feel free to turn it off and take a break or just not listen at all this week. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a difficult one. Because uh, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. That these are literally in the past hundred, less than a hundred years. Yes. Like minus when I was in college. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, so they're very recent history. So some people lived through both of these events. So just feel free to be like, I need space from this. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you okay. want to know what you're drinking? I do. <laughs> so. This is a blueberry mojito, really, in essence, but it's called a child's burden. And I wanted to go just with something simple and playful and fresh. Mm -hmm. So it is an ounce and a half of light rum, one part simple syrup, two lime wedges, 10 to 15 mint leaves, and a splash of soda water with blueberries both in the shaker and then out of the shaker. I didn't muddle any blueberries. I didn't mm-hmm. want it to be like a purplish blue color. Yeah. I just wanted like the essence of that in there. Yeah. So love that. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. I mean, it's delicious. Ugh, the mint. I love a mint cocktail. Yeah. And this is really coming through. I think I can, the lime I can taste really well too. And I didn't put in any lime juice, just mm. the wedges. Mm. I think it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's funny. We, um, my cocktail also has rum in it this oh, week. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Cause we don't do a ton of rum. No, we don't. Um, but yeah, this is delicious. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So tell me what you know about the 16th street Baptist church bombing. So I know that it is this just horrific event. Um, I don't, I know it was done by like white terrorists in Alabama. Um, but I don't know if they were officially part of the KKK. I don't know how involved they were in that specific organization, but I, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. (laughs) Fucking horrible people. Right. Um, and I don't know if there was ever any justice served. Like I just know that it happened and these little girls died. Um, and it was just this very direct attack. Um, yeah, but I don't really know much of the details of it. Yeah, I didn't either. It's funny because, like, I knew about the event. Yeah. But I I think just as a privileged, you know, white kid that also kind of lives in the mid-Atlantic to north region of the United States, this, this history hasn't been drilled into me the same way it has been for some yeah. other people. So it's like I knew it happened, but I didn't know what was happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So first about my sources, there's a really great Spike Lee documentary called Four Little Girls that's available on YouTube. Um, there is a- also a wonderful website called Say Their Name, and it's a memorial website which houses many photos and obituaries for people of color who've been unjustly murdered in the United States. So I found a lot of information there. Um, also, there are court case documentations and news coverage because that stuff happened more recently. Wikipedia is actually pretty inclusive on this matter, but it focuses mostly on the 
homegrown terrorist organization known as the KKK, which I am going to call it what it is this entire episode, yeah. which is a hate crime terrorist organization. Yeah. They're um, just like Boko Haram. I'm yeah. just going to say it. It's like, exactly what it is. Yeah. You can't tell me that they're different. They aren't. Um, so... In the years leading up to this story, there's going to be a lot of politics in this story, obviously, because we only have, you know, 11 to 14 years for each of the girls. In the years leading up to the story, Birmingham had earned a national reputation as a tense and, like, racially segregated city, like a severely segregated city. And any form of trying to break that segregation was met with violence and resistance. Martin Luther King Jr. described Birmingham as probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. The city had zero black police officers or firefighters. The police commissioner, Bull Connor, was an authoritarian leader of the city. What he said goes, and he was openly like, I'm a good Christian man who's furthering the message of God, but targeted racial crimes and imprisonment to like an extreme degree. Mm -hmm. Since the turn of the century, black citizens in Birmingham had been, and citizens of color in general, had been disenfranchised which is true of all of U.S. history. Voter registration for black citizens in Alabama and in Birmingham was almost nothing. Um, bombings at black homes were a regular occurrence. In the eight years leading up to the bombing of the church in 1963, there were 21 separate explosions that were recorded oh at black properties and churches. None were fatal, but... There, there was a lot of sales of dynamite. Like, people were buying dynamite, like, regularly. And when I say people, I mean terrorist groups like the KKK. Right. And it also seems like, I feel like it's just an example of them not taking it seriously. Because, oh, my gosh, nobody died. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but they could have. And that was probably the intention. Right. Like, or to, like, at least say, like, I want to kill you. It's not just like destruction of property, right? right. It's like, we want to scare you out of town. Yeah. We want to perhaps kill you. Mm-hmm. We want to destroy your livelihood so mm-hmm. that you can't stay here. Yeah. There's so many things connected to it. So the city had at this point earned the nickname Bombingham. Local civil rights leaders were trying to start a movement to fix this, but it was just too difficult with the amount of hate in the city. So they get on the phone and they call Dr. King. And every movement needs a meeting place. So there's this great three-story Baptist church on 16th Street that became the rallying point for civil rights activities through 1963. Both the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Congress on Racial Equality became involved with the church, and it was known as the Birmingham Campaign. They're, like, trying to set up this march. They're Mm going to go out, and we're going to, like, fight for racial justice in Alabama. But for some reason, even though Dr. King is there, it's not getting national attention. Hmm. Like, people are not focusing on Birmingham at all. The goal of the campaign was to help get black voters registered, which is absurd because it was legal to vote. They would just come up with all these different ways to block people from voting. I mean, they're doing that now. Exactly. Yes, (laughs) they are. Literally doing that now. So many things in this story have not changed. And it's just shocking. Yeah. Um, So 
the church became a meeting place not only for the community, but also for some really influential leaders in the civil rights movement who would stop in when they could. Like I said, Dr. King, um, Reverend Abernathy, and other famous civil rights leaders would go to meet there. Marches were organized, but again, there's not enough participation to really start anything until the children got involved. Kids wanted to march. They had something to say. There are two colleges in Birmingham. There's 15 to 20 high schools in Birmingham. And not to mention how, and this is like black colleges, black high schools. There's middle schools. There's elementary schools. And the kids say, we want to march. We want to be a part of this. So local students would organize and they would, on the days of marches, get up and walk out of class Mm. and go to the march. And teachers would let them. Like, what are you going to do? Say, don't go fight for your equality. And like, obviously they weren't school sanctioned events. So the teachers stayed and taught the kids that stayed. Mm -hmm. But so many kids were out. On May 2nd in particular, there were more than a thousand students, some as young as eight years old, others, you know, in their college years who went to gather at 16th Street Baptist Church for a protest. They marched down into Birmingham right at the Capitol and tried to discuss with the mayor their concerns about racial segregation. The march was met with fierce resistance. The authorities kind of stood around for a while and watched for a bit, but clearly they were standing watching for just the littlest thing to go wrong. And like the leader of the march before they left was like, take everything out of your pockets Even like a nail file. We don't want anybody to think that we were coming in here trying to attack. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy because white people attack the Capitol with like full (laughs) weapons. Full fucking weapons. And like this black community can't have a nail file in their pocket. Do you remember those guys who like the Charlottesville assholes who like walked around with like tiki torches Mm -hmm. on fire? Mm -hmm. Like as if they were like gaston and his cronies yeah like, what exactly were they doing i don't know but that's the exact type of thing i'm talking about like right the, these black people in a peaceful protest were seen as more threatening as yeah. people with ak-47s yeah. white people with ak-47s unbelievable so um as soon as something went a little awry these people start getting blasted with the full force of fire hoses Fortunately, like most of the kids were in the middle, like the little, little kids. But I mean, grown men are like spraying down teenagers, which hurts with a fire hose. That's insane. 600 people were arrested. And really, it seemed like the goal was to fill the jail with protesters. Young kids went to jail. They were like out of school for a couple days. Mm. On May 8th, though, an agreement was made between the civil rights community and the mayor that in 90 days they would start to integrate parts of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. They were going to start with like local stores so that black women could shop and go to the bathroom, like in the same building. (laughs) Like it's absurd. And then they were starting to talk about schools and they would start that on like September 4th. People in Birmingham are pissed. Mm -hmm. They're pissed. And the police commissioner bull, Um, comes on and he quote commended the white people for their restraint and conduct during the demonstrations (laughs) i can't with that okay yeah okay in the weeks that are following um september 4th when they started to kind of integrate 
Three bombs were detonated in Birmingham. Other acts of violence followed the settlement, and several Klansmen were known to have expressed frustration with what they saw as a lack of resistance to the black community. Even in the Klan, there's like a special group of Klansmen, like a splinter group, that are even mad at the Klan mm. for not being tough enough on what's happening with racial integration. As a rallying point, obviously, the, um, for the civil rights movement, this church in Birmingham is an obvious target. Uh, most of the arrests, actually, of black citizens of Birmingham happened within four blocks of the 16th Street Baptist Church. So, again, this is a really political story where we tragically lost the lives of four girls. And I'm going to introduce those four young ladies to you. But much of this story, of course, is going to be about the world around them to yeah. which they fell victim. Addie Mae Collins was born on April 18, 1949, in Birmingham, Alabama. She was one of six children to Julius and Alice Collins. She was very close to her sisters, who were also with her at the church that day. And they've done multiple interviews. So if you want to read papers or hear firsthand accounts of what happened, um, the Collins sisters are a really great place to look. She had attended Hill Elementary School and was an enthusiastic softball player and budding artist. Denise McNair was the only child of Chris McNair and Maxine Pippin. Later, they would have two more. She was born on November 17, 1951 in Jefferson City, Alabama. She attended Center Street Elementary School where she was friends with Condoleezza Rice. What? Get out of here, that's right? Insane. That is insane. Like I read that in one friends? source. Like they were yeah, the, school friends. Oh my gosh, that's Isn't so cute. <sighs> she was a brownie. She sang in the church choir and played baseball. <laughs> she liked to do plays and dance routines for her family. Her mother was a teacher. Her father was a photographer. Both had college degrees and were very financially comfortable. <laughs> Carol Robertson was the third child of Alpha and Alvin Robertson. Her father was a bandmaster at a local school in Birmingham, and her mother was a librarian. Carol was an avid um, clarinetist. Is that what it is? Is that what you would say? I she think so. She played the clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> at Parker High School. And she was a Girl Scout and a member of the Jack and Jill Club, which is the organization to raise cultural awareness for African-American children. She sang in the choir. She was a straight-A student, and she was in science club. Cynthia Wesley, Morris was her last name by birth, attended Ullman High School in Birmingham, Alabama. She excelled in math, reading, band, and was uh, described as a free spirit. She was born to a single mother with a family of eight children, but stayed with the Wesleys, and such changed her name as an informal adoption. Hmm. She did this so she could attend better schools while living with the Wesley family. She was the first child raised by them. They were both teachers, and she would return home on the weekends to be with her birth parents. Mm. So after this uh, terrible part, we'll kind of get back to the court cases and our babies a little bit. But in the early morning of September 15th, 1963, four Ku Klux Klan terrorists, Thomas Edwin Blatton Jr., uh, Robert Edward Campless, or Chambliss, Bobby Frank Cherry, and allegedly Herman Frank Cash planted a minimum of 15 sticks of dynamite mm. with a time delay under the steps of a church, which is directly adjacent to the basement wall. 
And if you are a churchgoer or a synagogue goer or a mosque goer or any type of temple, you know that the basement is where Sunday school is housed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These men knew this. Yeah. They knew exactly where they were putting this bomb and what they were trying to do. It's where the children are. It's where the choir room is. It's where the bathrooms are. You're talking like the weakest people in the church are going to be in this place. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you are a churchgoer, you know the Sunday morning drill. Everyone is running late. <laughs> yeah. Every Sunday. <laughs> you're rushing around. You're ironing your clothes. You're running to the door. Some weeks you're an usher. Some weeks you have to sing in the choir. Some weeks you're running early, but rarely. Some weeks you send your kids with your husband or you have your kids walk Mm -hmm. to church alone and you'll catch up later. My point in saying this is that most of these families didn't say I love you before their kids left. Sunday morning is a really Mm -hmm. hard time to like be pressing and ironing everyone's clothes when it really is your social event for the week. Yeah. And also like, I mean, there are plenty of fights in my household of like, I don't want to go this week. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just get your tie on and go. Mm -hmm. Like, Brush your hair. Yeah. Like (laughs) lots of that happens every Sunday morning. So a lot of the last words said to each other were in anger or in rushing or just not said at all. Yeah. This week in particular also was a youth service. So more than normal, the girls were supposed to look nice. Cynthia's sisters said that she and Cynthia came out um, or that Cynthia had come out of the front door with her slip showing and her mom like just got smart with her and was like, you can't go out looking like that. You never know when you aren't coming back. Oh my God. And looking back, like her mother like wants to choke on those words. Like, how could I say that to my daughter? Denise's mother was still at home getting ready and just sent her daughter with her husband like fine go to church I'll be there soon and Addie Mae's sister recalled that it took the four girls and there were six children but the four girls that were walking together it took them a really long time to walk to church that day because they were playing a game together along the way and when they got there they all split up and went their separate ways to get ready for their respective jobs for the youth service at 10 22 a.m. An anonymous man phoned the 16th Street Baptist Church. The call was answered by a 14-year-old girl who was just kind of like working the Sunday school. You know, there's always like an older teen who's kind of like in charge of what's going on downstairs. She picks up the call, and the caller simply said, three minutes, and hung up. Oh, my God. She doesn't know what to think. But less than 60 seconds later, (gasps) a bomb exploded. Oh, my God. Five children were present within the immediate vicinity of the basement wall at the time of the explosion. They were changing into their choir robes. Survivors say that the explosion shook the entire building and propelled the girls' bodies like rag dolls. The surrounding town felt it and heard it, so the people who were late for church knew something was up. Some thought it was thunder. Some were like, oh, you know, we kind of live near a factory. Maybe it's just like a noise. Um, Another kid at church was like, I thought Russia was attacking and it was like Sputnik. Like this is the 60s, you know, like they're thinking about the Cold War. The explosion blew a hole measuring seven feet in diameter in the rear wall of the church and a crater in the ground five feet wide and two feet deep. (sighs) It was so strong that it blew a passing motorist out of his car. Oh, my God. Cars parked nearby were destroyed. All but one of the stained glass windows in the church was destroyed. The undamaged window depicted 
Jesus leading a group of young children <sighs> away. Jesus Christ. Some of Addie Mae's sisters began looking outside. They couldn't find each other. They're running around trying to find each of the girls that they had walked to church with. Women are running around yelling for their babies. And one man said that he had walked up looking for his own children that he couldn't find and started digging. And that's when he found one of the young girl's heads. Oh, my God. Hundreds of people from all over Birmingham converged on the church to search the debris for survivors. Police erected barricades around the church, and several outraged black men began to fight with the police. 2,000 black citizens came to the scene, and the pastor, who's Reverend John Cross Jr., is trying to placate the crowd, like, please don't do this right now. Like, we do not need this riot this second. But the black citizens of Birmingham were angry. Yeah, I'm sure. Children were just murdered. People didn't even know that yet. But, like, word is seeping out. I'm also imagining just, like, the confusion on the parts of the people who are like, my child is was in that building. Where are, like, mm-hmm. I always think of the moment where, like, my brother Josh's house burned down and seeing my mom running around the street just like looking for him right because she didn't know where he was and there's his house engulfed in flames like just that like the world is going crazy there are people are everywhere but i need to find my kid one focus yeah 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 exactly oh, gosh and like no one shares that focus with you no you know what i'm saying because like other people are worried about their kids which they should be right and like yeah just that um I can't imagine the emotions in panic, that. fear, yeah. like terror, anger. Yeah, yeah anger, all of it, all of it, all yeah. of it. Um, so as we said earlier, there were four girls, Addie Mae, Carol, Cynthia and Denise, who were killed in this terrorist attack. One girl's body, as I said, was so mutilated that she was decapitated and could only be identified by a ring that she had been wearing. Another was killed by a piece of mortar that was embedded in her skull. In 2001, later on, the pastor recalled that the girls' bodies were found kind of stacked atop each other. They wouldn't have had time to cling together, but survivors say that they were happily, like, helping each other zip up their choir robes and, like, putting the sashes on. So these four girls were having a moment of community. All four girls were pronounced dead on arrival at the Hillman Emergency Clinic. An additional 22 people were injured, one of whom was Addie Mae's younger sister, one of the four girls, um, 12-year-old Sarah Collins. She had 21 pieces of glass embedded in her face and became blind in one eye. Immediately after, violence escalated in Birmingham. Groups of white and black youth were throwing bricks and shouting insults at one another. The police urged families to keep your teenagers at home and inside. Governor George Wallace ordered an additional 300 state police to assist in maintaining order, which he's also terrible. We'll talk about him in a minute. Within 24 hours, a minimum of five businesses and properties had been firebombed and numerous cars had been stolen. The mayor described the church bombing as just sickening. This is the mayor of Birmingham. The attorney general dispatched 25 FBI agents, including uh, explosive experts and a forensics team to Birmingham. Remember, we don't know it's the KKK yet. Right. We have no idea. 
Like some people might even think that you're right. It's Russia or something right, like, like something even bigger, right? Like, they're bigger, badder, scarier. There's yeah. any number of things to be happening. The response from white supremacist groups was terrible though. Even though the reports talked about the loss of children, one chose to celebrate saying, well, four less N words. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. For real. For real. That was this a, like a person speaking publicly? A per- yeah. That it was like quoted in the newspaper. Oh my God. Yeah. It's and, just, again, like the, the fact that they don't see them as human. Right. Like it's terrifying. As this incident reached national press, which it did, the killings were condemned by white Americans all and black Americans and people of color all over the country. White lawyer Charles Morgan Jr. stated, who did it? We all did it. The who is every individual who talks about them N-words and spreads the seed of hate to his neighbor and his sons. What's it like living in Birmingham? No one ever really has known and no one ever will until that city becomes a part of the United States. Hmm. And Walter Cronkite said that this event convinced white Americans about how bad the racial injustice was. Yeah. Well, because when it's far away, you know, you don't think about it. You don't think about it because like in other areas, like, you know, again, it's kind of that passive racism we talk about in a lot of episodes of concerning like musical artists mm-hmm. how they're like at least people in the south are honest about it yeah. <laughs> right but like i don't think people in the north really had a mm-hmm. solid grasp on like how bad like how warlike it was getting yeah absolutely how warlike it was getting how like yeah a lot of schools in the north had been desegregated but that doesn't mean it's like that everywhere what's happening in your city isn't what's happening in every city yeah and people just hadn't seen that um the Milwaukee Sentinel said the deaths, in a sense, were on the hands of all of us. Yeah. So people are starting to acknowledge, like, we didn't do enough. Later that day, though, things didn't get better. Two young black men, Johnny Robinson and Virgil Ware, were shot to death in Birmingham only seven hours after this. <sighs> Robinson was 16 and shot in the back while fleeing down an alley from a police officer. Oh, my God. Virgil Ware was 13 and shot in the cheek and chest by another teenage boy who felt threatened by him as he was riding his bike home. I mean, shot in the face. Just a timely story to tell during the literal case of Kyle Rittenhouse, that piece of shit. Yeah, it's absolutely a timely story to tell because... Like I said, things haven't changed. You can't just be a teenager and kill a black person that you see because you feel scared. Yeah. Like, get over yourself. Yeah. Educate yourself. Do anything. And also, you're fucking making that up. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) riding on a bike away from you. You did it because of hate. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The boy who shot 13-year-old Virgil was later convicted of second-degree manslaughter, but... The judge suspended the sentence and imposed a two-year probational period. So many um, civil rights activists blamed the governor because of his outspoken, which is George Wallace, because of his outspoken segregationalist talk one week before the bombing. He had done an interview with the New York Times, and he said that they needed a few first-class funerals to stop racial integration. Like he's implying you need to ki- we need to kill some people to scare them away. The governor. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. So 
Birmingham initially offered $52,000 reward for the arrest of the bombers, and the governor offered an additional $5,000, although the donation was accepted. Martin Luther King Jr. is known to have sent Wallace a telegram saying, the blood of four little children is on your hands. Your irresponsible and misguided actions have created in Birmingham and Alabama the atmosphere that has included continued violence and now murder. The families of the victims had to go to the hospital and identify what they could of their children's and siblings' remains. They also spoke of the dresses that they were picking out for the four girls' funerals. And one of them simply said, well, her favorite color was yellow. And that broke my heart to think about picking the daughter. Also, the dress of your daughter is yellow. And also, I always feel for people experiencing, like, loss and having to... Uh, change your language to say was Mm -hmm. you know like it's not like her favorite color is yellow it's her favorite color was yellow now and then it's also like what like what a crazy thing to have to do in the wake of this horrific event be like what do you want her to wear it's like i don't fucking know like yeah (laughs) what what do you mean what do i want her to wear like yeah exactly it's one of those things where it's like i don't know she can't pick her dress she's 14 she would have loved to pick her own damn dress actually for prom or whatever yeah. or funeral like yeah it's just um and but i also feel because it there are the things that like you do have to make decisions on but like i just wish it wasn't that way yeah like, it's like I so practical they, it is like a weird practice i wish they didn't have to go through this continued trauma right of like i don't know like yeah so um Carol Rosamond Robertson was laid to rest in a private family funeral held on September 17th, 1963. Her mother, Alpha, had expressly requested that her daughter be buried separately from the other victims. MLK tried to convince her to do it with the others, but she just didn't want it to be a public circus. And she had already started kind of planning it before the other families had decided they were all kind of doing one together. And she was really a little upset with Martin Luther King Jr., which he understood. He had said, like, I'm going to have to go to Birmingham now and face these families who know that the church was bombed because I was there. Yeah. Like, they can, they're going to blame me in part for the fact that their children are dead. Yeah. Her service, this is Carol's service, took place in St. John's African Methodist Episcopal Church. 1,600 people were in attendance. At this service, Reverend C.E. Thomas told his congregation, the greatest tribute you can pay to Carol is to be calm, be loving, be kind, be innocent. She was buried in a blue casket at Shadow Lawn Cemetery. The following day, the funeral of the other three girls was at the 6th Avenue Baptist Church. Although no city officials attended the service, which that seems kind of fucked up, mm-hmm. 800 clergymen of all races were among the attendees, as well as, obviously, Dr. King. He gave the concluding address to the 3,300 mourners and said, this tragic day may cause the white side to come to terms with its conscience. In spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not become bitter. We must not lose faith in our white brothers. Life is hard, at times as hard as crucible steel, but today 
You do not walk alone. As the girls' coffins were taken to their graves, King directed that those present remain silent and solemn and forbade singing, shouting, or demonstration during the march. Friends and siblings of the victims said they knew Dr. King was there, they knew he was famous and that he was talking, but it was impossible to focus on what he was saying when they knew that that was my sister in that coffin. Initial investigation... (laughs) At first, people thought it was like a passing car bomb that exploded because it was like right in the front of the church. But by September 20th, only two days after this funeral, the FBI was able to confirm that the explosion had been caused by a device that was purposefully planted beneath the steps in the church. Within days, the investigation began focusing on a splinter group of the, a splinter terrorist group of the already terrorist group, the KKK. The small faction thought that the greater KKK had become impotent and in its response to black people. God, what the hell is their thing with like weird masculinity? I, it's like toxic so, masculinity. It's so, so odd. Weird. It really is. This group had previously been linked to bombing black owned businesses. Investigators gathered numbers of witness statements and they attested to seeing these four guys in their 1957 Chevy walk up to the steps of the church like in the morning. Um, Robert Chambliss was questioned by the FBI on September 26th and was indicted for illegally purchasing dynamite. But just for the purchase, not for the murder. Not that we know yet because he and his two acquaintances, John Hall and Charles um were like they had illegally possessed dynamite in the past and then they would get caught and then they would just turn it over because they would have to turn it over so people are like okay well he had the dynamite but this is like a thing with him (laughs) so they each received a hundred dollar fine which today would have been eight hundred and fifty dollars and there were no charges pressed against these men physical evidence was lacking People were scared to come forward and speak because their houses would be bombed. Right. And surveillance footage was not admissible in court at the time. In 1958, the FBI formally closed the investigation and the files were sealed. That's that's it. That was all they did. Uh, For the first 20 years. 20 years? The first one is like 10 years. Oh, wait. It gets bonkers how long it took to get these guys uh, in jail. Those of them that went to jail. So we've got the Birmingham campaign, the March on Washington, this bombing, and then the assassination of JFK, who was a big supporter of racial integration, back to back to back to back, right? Uh, and the what a, a horrible time to be alive. Honestly, 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 like I know that like COVID was bad, and like like the past year has been so difficult, but this was just like a whole decade of like bullshit. Like, yeah. God, that was awful. Exactly, and but. A lot of people credit these events back to back to back to being what brought the Civil Rights Act in 1964 to fruition. Yeah. It's like if all of this didn't happen and that does not mean it was worth it. Right. Yeah. It was worth it. It's so fucked up. It's terrible. It's like, why does a house need to catch on fire for you to put some water on the plants or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Like you have dying plants on the porch. And they get accidentally watered when, like, something catches on fire. Like, that's what this feels like to me. Like, that's a a perfect metaphor (laughs) for what's going on here. Yeah. Nobody was paying attention to Birmingham until children were murdered. Right. Like, we don't need to go that far. Like, maybe stop it ahead of that. Um, 
But that's not where the story ends, fortunately. The case remained officially unsolved until William Baxley was elected attorney general in Alabama in 1971. He discovered that the original police documents were worthless, of course, because he's like, this is bullshit. They didn't investigate. Well, and all the police were in the fucking KKK. Why would they do a proper investigation? And everybody in the government. So he's like the new attorney general. And he's like, no, 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 we're going to fix this. So he reopened the case. He built trust with key witnesses. And even though they were reluctant to testify, they're like, no. Still, like years later. Yeah. Like we closed this case. It's almost 10 years later. They're like, no, we closed this in our brains. We don't want to deal with this. But he gathered evidence and proof of the dynamite purchase. He requested access to the FBI files and found that a lot of the evidence that the FBI had found was never originally given to the prosecutors. Because they're Mm. like, why am I going to give this to these white racist prosecutors? Like, it doesn't make sense for the FBI to give it to them. So Robert Chambliss was put on trial again. In 1977, at the age of 73, he was released on $200,000 bond while he was waiting his trial. He said, yeah, I bought dynamite, but I turned it into the police. And then the police were like, no, he didn't. And then he was like, no, but I gave it to another KKK member. One individual who had went to the scene was like, yeah, I saw Robert standing behind the police barricade, practically watching the church burn. He was just like there having a good old time. Even a Klan's member testified that Robert had been mad at the KKK because they weren't moving fast enough and dragging their feet. In closing arguments, the prosecutor expressed sadness that the penalty, that the death penalty was okay in 1963, but it had been repealed since then. So the prosecutor's like, I'm really sad we can't kill this guy. On that day, the jury deliberated for over six hours, and that continued the following day. On November 18th, and this is because this was the family willing to go to court over it. Mm -hmm. On November 18th, 1977, he was found guilty (gasps) of the murder of Denise McNair. He was sentenced to life in prison for her murder. Wow. He said. Only 10 years after? Yeah. He said, Judge, Your Honor, all I can say is God knows I've never killed anybody (laughs) and never bombed anything in my life. (laughs) I didn't bomb that church. I hate him. Absolutely hate him. Now. That was um, in 1977. He goes to jail. In 1985, Robert died in um, like a health center connected to the prison. Uh, He was 81 years old when he died. He had been for the last several years confined to a solitary cell because the other inmates would like attack him because he was like a huge racist who kills children. (laughs) That's terrible. Ten years after he died, the FBI reopens the case again. Mm. And they opened 9,000 pieces of evidence that had previously been (laughs) sealed. So in the year 2000, Katie. Oh, my God. 2000. The FBI officially announces that their their findings on the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing is that it was done by four members of the KKK. In the year 2000, the FBI says this. I'm sure everybody's like, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> Good. Like, thanks. <laughs> what? Did, did you see the burning crosses? Yeah. Like, come what? on. So by this time, Robert was dead in prison and Herman Cash had also died. Um, but the other two, they were going to go after him. Yeah. The other two guys. Uh, one of them, though, was like, I have dementia. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Blatton, Blanton. He was recorded. They they had conversations recorded between him and his wife, like proving it. They like text based things. Like, why didn't they go after him in the 60s? It's so crazy. The jury only deliberated for two and a half hours before they gave him life in life in prison. But I mean, he's in his 80s. So he 
ends up so this court case happened in 2000 he had a parole hearing in 2016 and they said the cold-blooded callousness of this hate crime has not diminished due to the passage of time stay yeah. in prison yeah he died in 2020 so good thing to come out of 2020 wow look at that 20 years he got behind bars that's 20 years pretty good pretty good should have been should have been should have been his actual life been 60 his real actual life, life right but, exactly you know and then Bobby Cherry was also tried. He was tried in 2002. Um, he said he wasn't guilty, of course, but mm-hmm. he had gloated over the death of the victims publicly. Oh All of these guys had. They were like, I'm Dynamite Mike or whatever. Ugh. None of them were named Mike. <laughs> <laughs> evidence, <laughs> evidence shows that he planted the bomb. And there were a lot of details about the bomb in his case that I didn't feel like getting into. But the defense was like, you can't put him in prison for being racist. What? You have to prove that he killed them. So, I mean, fair. They were like, all you keep doing is saying this guy's racist, but you have no proof that he did it. But actually, like, he made the bomb. So, right, like, yeah. It's like, so no, that's pretty racist that we have proof. <laughs> he was convicted of all four murders. Ooh. The jury deliberated for seven hours, sentenced him to life in prison. He died of cancer two years later, though. <sighs> so he was in prison for two years. Altogether, they were in prison for a total of 30 years, these four guys. That's not life in prison. That's like one person's life in prison, not four people's four life sentences. They should have each had to serve four consecutive life sentences for what they did. Mm -hmm. Not to mention arson and the injury and like all the other shit. And what is it, like illegally purchasing dynamite, which I know they paid the fine for. $100. Yeah. So there also is this possible other guy, Gary Thomas Rowe Jr., who the first guy always said, but he's always alleged. We don't know that he was there. Okay. So my point in saying that they together served 30 years is that they got to live their lives. They got married. They had children. They went to parties. They celebrate holidays. They got educated. They got to see their children get educated. These guys all went to prison in their 70s and 80s. This was stolen from those girls Mm. and their families. So the reason that the cocktail is called child's burden is that I believe and am saddened by the fact that so many adult problems fall squarely on the shoulders of our babies. If you think about climate change and the rising suicide rates and school shootings and racism, like it's just too much to handle. And I am like, viscerally angry that we have left this legacy for our kids to deal with. Um, This event even caused fear and anxiety in the black children in Birmingham for the rest of their lives. Their siblings and kids, their friends from school didn't want to go to church, didn't want to go outside, didn't want to have friends because they were just terrified. And the adults felt they couldn't help. They're like, sorry, you're young, you're black, can't help you. You don't have the same rights kind of get over it. And it's, it's kind of failing our children in a way, not that like the black community in Birmingham failed, just we as a community failed in general, we have failed the next generation of kids. So I wanted to finish with, um, a letter that I felt was apt because this bombing happened in September. Dr. King, wrote letters to each of the families um, right before Christmas, which is like what it is now. And uh, on the documentary I watched, Coretta read it for Mm. the documentary. This one says, Dear Mr. and Mrs. McNair, here in the midst of the Christmas season, my thoughts have turned to you. 
this has been a difficult year for you with the coming of Christmas when the family bonds are typically more closely knit makes this loss that you have sustained even more painful. Yet with the sad memories, there are the memories of the good days. Denise was with you and your family. As you know, many of us are giving up our Christmas or, or severely limiting them as a memorial for the great sacrifices made this year to the freedom struggle. There is nothing that can compensate for the vacant place in your family circle. But we did want to share a part of our sacrifice this year with you. Perhaps there is some small thing dear to your heart in which this gift can play a part. Sincerely yours, Martin Luther King Jr. It's just so hard with Christmas coming up and so many people who lost people in COVID. And it makes me think of like the Sandy Hook school shooting that happened in December, not but a few years back. And how like that happened in December. Those parents had Christmas presents sitting in the closet that they never got to give to all those little babies. And I just am mortified that we are allowing this to happen to our kids in such a wealthy successful country yeah so that is the story of the beautiful cynthia addie may carol and denise may your memories be a blessing Well, I wish I could say things are going to get better, but they aren't. <laughs> it's not a good night. <laughs> it's not a good night. It's a really sad night. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to make another drink uh, to drown our sorrows in, <laughs> and we'll be right back with yes. part two. Join us if you're not super sad. Otherwise, take <laughs> take a break. Go on, ready? Okay, Katie. So we're back with another like super like depressing. There's some happy portions to your story. Um, yes, but but another story that is a little hard to listen to yes. and to be a part of. But again, one that we all know. And we and if you don't know, you need to know, right? Like and um, yeah. And a theme I think of both of our stories is uh, which we can get to in just the two of us is really like the outer like the harm that is done to everyone <laughs> and not just the people involved um you know what i'm saying like the idea that m- so many people are affected by all these things yes. okay so what do you know about the Chibok girls so i know that this is a group of teenage girls mm-hmm. uh living in nigeria i believe that they were christian in faith mm-hmm. Uh, and that there was a kidnapping that could have happened at school mm-hmm. and that it was a splinter offshoot um, uh, Islamic terrorist group, I believe, mm-hmm. um, which I want to be very, very careful about because the, the, uh, the faith of Islam is not one-to-one with terrorism. No. Right. So, like, that's important as well. Um, and I know that it has been many years. They, I think they were like married off to people in mm-hmm. this group. And, um, some of the girls have been rescued or escaped, but many of the girls either have not escaped. They could be dead or they could still be in this like 
wife sex marriage slavery situation and have no way out yeah. uh but i honestly don't know a lot of details i okay. know like the very blanket things but i think one thing i like about this podcast is i um when something is really sad like that, I really shy away from knowing more. Yeah. I like to be yeah. the headline girl. Like, I know it happened. Yep. I don't need to know exactly how it happened, but it happened. Yeah. Well, but I need to be better at that. Yeah. It's how I felt about the the bombing you just did. Like, it's yeah. like, I know that it happened, but I literally, like, have a hard time just, like, facing it because it's so fucking terrible. Yeah. The gut-wrenching portion, which is, like... Maybe I should give up one day to, like, be upset about it when people are giving up their children. Right. You know? Like, yeah. it's like I need to, like, man up a little bit or woman up, whatever. Right. Um, so let's learn what I am drinking. Okay. And then you can give me all the uh, details. Okay. So this is called Bring Back Our Girls. Um, it is spice rum, Angostura bitters, fresh lime juice, and then you top it with orange soda and Sprite. So this is based off of a traditional Nigerian cocktail that apparently is like Nigeria's favorite cocktail. All the rage. All, all the rage over there. Um, yeah, so that's it. Yeah, I, I garnish it with lime. <laughs> Cheers. It just tastes like... Flintstone vitamins made into a soda. It is so good. Uh, it's really good. It's funny. I haven't had orange soda in such a long time. That's funny. Um, I that was like the only thing I drank for years. I remember I did a favor for my neighbors and they asked me what I wanted. It's like I just want a box of popcorn and a twelve pack of orange soda. What a cheap date. <laughs> they got it for me and That's I loved wonderful. it. <laughs> That's so cute. Uh, yeah, I love orange soda. So this is delicious. Um, <laughs> not something I would make for myself personally. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a little like sweet, but it's fun. It's fun and I like it. And it, like, it's kind of like an orange crush where it's oh, like, yeah. I don't want to drink an orange crush to get drunk. Yeah. I want to drink it when I'm like, it's the first summer happy hour and I'm yes. out with my girls and everybody's getting one. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to get one. Yeah. And I also just felt like the addition of like two different kind of sodas yeah. is like so something a kid would do. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I don't want just one soda. I'm going to mix all my sodas. Oh, yeah, they go down the line. To yeah. <laughs> the fountain soda. Okay. So I thought it was fitting. Tell um, me about this story okay so my sources are the main one was a podcast called what happened to dot 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 question mark mm, okay and it's all about like things that were huge news stories but then kind of went away and you're like hold hold on yeah what happened to that like <laughs> did, did they get found are they okay <laughs> like um so i got a lot from that podcast they did a wonderful two-part series on this um there was also a few things like a bunch of youtube videos um one from cbs and uh obviously wikipedia and aljazeera.com um and yeah there were a lot of like things i got like little tidbits from uh for this but the main source was what happened to okay so our story begins on April 14th, 2014, in a village called Chibok, located in northern Nigeria. Around 1 o'clock in the morning, a woman named Grace Sally describes hearing a rumbling, and then her house was shaking. She initially thought that there was something wrong with her generator. Um, it helped power the house um, that her and her husband lived in, um, and she was like, maybe it's that. Like, I, she couldn't possibly think of what it was. 
Um, so her husband, Dinlade, went outside to check, and he ran back in the house and told her that they needed to leave immediately. They go out, jump over the fence, and are literally running away as the sounds of screaming and chanting seem to be getting closer and closer. No, no, no. Them and a few other neighbors ran into the mountains as far away from their village as they could because the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram had invaded their village and everyone knew that if you made contact with Boko Haram, you would not survive that encounter. They weren't sure why initially, um, but then someone said, I think they went to the school. The group did indeed head for the school, but of course they set fire to multiple houses in the village as well. When they got to the school, they met hundreds of tired and confused girls who were sleeping in their dormitory after studying hard for their final exams. They are between the ages of 12 and 17. The men instructed them all to gather together. They told the girls, look, we're soldiers with the Nigerian army. Just do what we say. But one of the students, Hanatu Stevens, overheard some of the soldiers talking whether, about whether or not to kill them. One said, why don't we just pour gasoline on them and burn them alive? Thankfully, the other soldier said, well, we shouldn't kill them because they're girls. And when they asked where the boys were, because they were expecting to find boys and girls, one of them said, well, they're only day students. You know, there are no boys here. They then proceeded to usher the 276 girls out of the building and into cars to take them three hours away to their bunkers deep in the Simbisa forest. The girls were gone and the school was destroyed. And no one really knew what was going on until Boko Haram leased a video of the girls in their dark colored hijabs and robes with the leader claiming responsibility and saying that he planned to sell the girls into slavery. But when they were talking to individual reporters and things like that, they're like, oh, no, our main goal is to convert them to Islam. Like, that's why we did this. That's the whole point of this whole thing. And in one very frustrating <laughs> interview uh, from 2014, a reporter from CBS is interviewing one of the members of Boko Haram, and he keeps ins insisting. He's like, no, no, no. All the girls converted to Islam willingly. He goes, we never forced anyone. They did it on their own. And he goes, well, after we threatened them with selling them into slavery, <sighs> then they did it. And she was like, well, that doesn't sound like they willingly did it. And she was like, so what, what is your plan? She asked him, what is going to happen to these girls? And he goes, well, if Allah wishes nothing to happen to them, then nothing will happen. He also denied that they were selling them into marriage, but many of them were forced to marry men within Boko Haram. And this was basically to make sure that they were officially Boko Haram property so they could be beaten and raped repeatedly and forced to bear their children. Some girls were made into fighters. One girl said that she was trained to shoot, how to use bombs, and how to attack a village. And really, other than that, we don't have a whole lot of information on what was going on on the interior of what these girls were experiencing. So who were these men and why did they do this? Boko Haram was started around 2002 by a man named Muhammad Yusuf out of uh, frustration with the West and the corrupt Nigerian government. So 
The country of Nigeria is large and it's split among various ethnic and religious lines. And the South is predominantly Christian and the North is majority Muslim. Yusuf established a religious complex and school in Northeast Nigeria that was initially meant, he was like, I just want to make this a center that's like, this is for Islam. And, you know, it, it really attracted a lot of poor Muslim families from across Nigeria who, like, didn't have a place to go otherwise. And, like, also, like, other neighboring countries, because I think it's like Chad and Cameroon are, like, right there. Um, and it was really focused on Islam, Islamic education. And his passion and anti-Western message made him very popular, not only among the poorest in the area, but also some influential people in the country and many university students. So Yusuf and his followers set out to make the state of Borno that they were in. So that's where Chibok is as well. It's the state of Borno. Okay. Um, an Islamic state. Actually, maybe Chibok isn't in Borno. I'm sorry. That might not be true. But, but Borno, like Borno is, yeah, again, this is all in like northern Nigeria. Okay. So there's a state called Borno. And he was like, well, now I want to make this whole state an Islamic state. And I want Sharia law by any means necessary. Mm. So the name Boko Haram roughly translates into Western education is forbidden. And this becomes their mission. And in 2009, they ramp up that mission and things really take a turn. So in 2009, they stage a coup and try and overthrow the government of Borno. So Borno is kind of like what like Maryland would be, right? I, from, from my understanding. And so they're in the midst of this bloody, horrific battle. Around 800 people were killed and there is massive destruction. Muhammad Yusuf is apprehended and then killed in police custody. And they kind of thought that, like, this would take care of the problem. They're like, okay, we cut the head off the snake. It's gone. This group will fall apart. But this only encouraged the group and solidified their belief that they were in the right. And the violence only increased as Abu Bakr Shakal stepped in as their new leader. And they officially declared war on Borno and its leaders. So, like, the second-in-command was, like, almost more of a scary influence. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, in 2011, they sent a car bomb into the UN building in Abuja, where 23 people were killed. And between 2013 and 2015, the group would kill around 11,000 people through various attacks. And 2.2 million people were displaced while trying to flee the violence. Because the group is trying to expand its territory. Again, they want to make Borno an Islamic state. So they are trying to get as much territory in there as possible. Mm. There um, is obviously a lot more to this group and their story. Um, but I didn't want to go like too into it that the whole episode is about them because it's not. Um, but I also wanted to tell a bit of their story because the Chibok girls were kidnapped by them. But they are not even close to the only victims in this struggle that continues today. So, like, the Chibok girls are not the only victims. Yeah. Right. There's, I like, mean, so many people. Literally, like, again, between these couple years, 11,000 people were killed. Mm. Like, that's an insane amount of people. It reminds me of when we did on the Maddie Nasser story. I was thinking about that from the Sudan. whole time. Because it's, like, a very similar, like, her 
village was invaded. The children were taken. They were sold into slavery, and it was common, and it happened all over Sudan. Yeah. Yeah. And during a huge bloody war. Like, this is the same thing. Yeah. It's a really, like, similar, like, situation that they're in where it's like, people are like, I don't know what to do. How Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so... That's the group. And as the news spread of this kidnapping across Nigeria, people had never seen it. Like almost 300 girls. Like obviously there had been kidnappings, but this is an unbelievable number of children to kidnap. Oh, it's a national attention grabber. Yeah. International. It does become international. So immediately after people in Nigeria turn to the government and they're like, how could this happen? And at first, the government of Nigeria said, oh, that's not true. No girls were taken. Like, that's just not true. And then I think when Boko Haram released the video, they couldn't deny it anymore. So like, okay, uh, I guess it's true. And once people began looking into it, they discovered that two separate military bases had been warned of the upcoming attack. <gasps> repeatedly. No. But they did nothing. Because they didn't want to engage with the terrorists because they knew how dangerous and how heavily armed they were. And because of this delay in action before and after the attack, the number of girls taken might even be more. We don't know because it was so chaotic and mismanaged that like 276 is the number we always say it could have been more. So people in Nigeria are... (laughs) outraged and this is when protests begin and a social media campaign begins to spread with the hashtag bring back our girls this hashtag um was obviously not without controversy because when the campaign finally reached the u.s many people attributed its creation to an la-based filmmaker rama mostly um but nigerian residents were quick to correct that it was accurately attributed to uh, Nigerian lawyer Ibrahim um, Abdullahi. Mm-hmm. So he first heard it from former federal minister of education, Obiageli um, Ezekwiseli, um, who was speaking at an event in the Nigerian city of Port Harcourt. Mm. And after the speech, Ibrahim tweeted about it. And he was like, you know, just listen to this, like hashtag bring back our girls, hashtag G-Box school, like, you know, all of these things. And, but yeah, but the hashtag bring back our girls really stuck. And when the controversy about like who said it first started, you know, Ibrahim was quick to say, he was like, okay, I will say it is important to credit people, but if you're focusing on this, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Seriously. Like, you know, and he like said something along those lines, but again, it is important to credit people uh, on a hashtag. Run. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. the hashtag quickly spread across the world, uh, and soon the first lady of the United States at the time, Michelle Obama, spoke publicly about the kidnapping, and a photo was released of her standing with a white sheet of paper that had "Bring Back Our Girls" written in Sharpie. This then became a phenomenon with celebrities such as Selma Hayek, Kim Kardashian, like walking red carpets with a white piece of paper that says, bring back our girls, you know, and obviously like Malala is out there 
spreading awareness about this because she's like this is the exact type of thing i'm trying to help like literally girls just trying to go to fucking school and they're being kidnapped right like this exactly what's happened to me so they're all repeating this action to spread awareness and to increase the pressure on the nigerian government to find these girls and bring them back some point to this is one of the earliest examples of like viral hashtag activism. Mm. So there had been some before. So like there was hashtag Coney 2012. Do you remember that? <laughs> um, so it was in my freshman year of college um, and it was really big. I just remember like it was everywhere. Coney 2012. I had a newborn, um, so I have no yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, know what was happening in 2010 <laughs> through 2012. I'm out but so this one is a little bit so coney was like this horrible like from what i remember um he was like like a terrorist Mm -hmm. who was like doing really terrible things um and there had been this documentary made about him from the thing like invisible children or something like that which also there's some like weird shit going on there too so like anyways we're not talking about that one right but this one was more of like a video that went viral whereas bring back our girls. This was a message. This was a command that everyday people, celebrities, world leaders are giving to the Nigerian government. They are telling them to do something. And it was good because then the Nigerian government couldn't just like sweep it under the rug as it (laughs) seemed like they were planning to do. Um, But it also, one of the negative sides of it is that it gave Boko Haram a big publicity boost which terrorist groups love. And as journalist Erica Vela put it, she's the one who did the show, um, What Happened To. Mm. She said it gave them a golden bargaining chip. So now it was like these girls that were just like whatever before are now like, oh. So now like the United, like Michelle Obama is watching what happens to these girls. Which is like the wife of the most powerful person, the wife of the leader of the free world. Yeah. And they're like, okay. So everybody's watching now. So we can ask for a lot more because this is a lot more public now. Mm. And like people outside of Nigeria actually give a shit. So again, it was good because it put pressure on the government, but it was also bad because Boko Haram did kind of like use it to their advantage. Well, that's a trade off so, you have to take. I mean, yeah. it's a, you have oh, to. it totally is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that the hashtag was a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... The bargaining began over not just ransom money, but also the exchange of Boko Haram soldiers who had been captured. The negotiations were difficult and time consuming, which is, again, the other complicated side of this. It's easy to say, bring back our girls. But actually getting them back is really difficult and extremely dangerous. Again, like this is not like these are terrorists who like, don't really give a shit about these human lives. Mm. Like, or like, so people aren't counted. Like different people are not counted as actually human in terrorist groups. There's like different groups of people are treated as like a a separate species instead of like one within your community that needs protecting, which is what's so scary about terrorist organizations. It's Mm -hmm. very culty. Yeah. Oh, it totally is. So, the um David Otto, who handled many of the negotiations, said that people kind of became more interested in the result rather than the process, which is of course like true about everything. Like 
you know, you don't want to see how the fucking sausage is made, whatever. You just want to eat it. Like, whatever. It's like, like, a lot of people probably felt like, what what can I do about the Nigerian government? Like, right, right, yeah. what, who am I? Like, I'm a right. little baby over here. So, um, but yeah, but again, it's just like, it is kind of simplifying it. So I was like, just bring them back. And it's like, bringing them back is not as easy as you're kind right. of making it seem. Like, it's literally hostage negotiation. Right. So... Out of the 276 girls, uh, 57 did escape. Um, two girls named Joy Bashara and Lydia Pogu jumped out of a truck that had been broken down on the side of the road. And they just ran. They ran for miles. Um, they finally got home. But when they got home, they were really scared, obviously. And they didn't feel safe attending school for a really long time. They didn't even feel comfortable sleeping in their homes for a long time. Lydia described that she and her family and her neighbors would leave their house every night to sleep in the woods just in case Boko Haram came back, which was likely. Looking for her. Yeah. Or them. Or Or them. Or anyone. Literally anyone. But eventually, after a trip to the American embassy and talking to some government officials and sharing their story... The two girls did reconsider, and they were offered a chance to go to school in the U.S. And like I said, they ended up graduating college this year, and it was incredible. Over the years, there were more girls who were released. Uh, I think the total was around 110. The largest amount released at a time was 82. This was in 2017. This was a big deal. Mm. 82 girls were exchanged for some of Boko Haram's members who had been arrested by the Nigerian government. Hanatu Stevens, who we mentioned earlier, was one of these girls uh, released in this exchange. But she didn't go back home whole, physically or mentally. She had intense mental trauma from her years with Boko Haram. And one of her legs had been blown off during an air raid just horrible and after this particular large-scale release uh many of the girls were taken immediately to government officials instead of their parents and uh, they're interrogated about their time with the terrorist group and i understand where like the government is coming from getting information but like for these girls it was like great we just got out of this horrible situation and we just want to go home and now you're keeping us here like not home like we just want to go to our family that is poor ball handling there yeah. that's not an okay thing to do no uh but eventually they did get to go home and it, when they got home their families were happy to see them there were organizations who were trying to help them with counseling and getting them back into school but for some girls who escaped Boko Haram they weren't always accepted back home especially if they came back pregnant. What many girls were finding is that when they went back home, people, including their family, didn't feel like they could trust them. They were worried that they were spies for Boko Haram, that they had been brainwashed. So it isn't a purity thing? Sometimes it is. Okay, so I was worried that it was like a, you're now like an an impure woman. No, this is like a a safety measure because like they are worried that They've come home and they're pretending to be normal, but they're brainwashed and they're worried that they're human bombs or soldiers trained to kill them once they get home and the family falls asleep. Was Boko Haram was known for using women and girls as suicide bombers. So for a lot of girls, when they went home, they were met with a lot of suspicion 
And it wasn't an easy transition. Like everyone is on edge. Some of these girls were ostracized and often just not let back into the family home. Jobs were also difficult to come by. No one wanted to hire them or buy anything from them. One mother and, do- and her daughter, Hawa and Asmo, had to move to an entirely different village, one that housed other former captives of Boko Haram who weren't welcome back home. So these former captives are now refugees. There were other girls, however, who were still captive. And while trying to get the rest home, something happened which complicated negotiations. Boko Haram split into two factions, um, the original one led by Shakao, and then another one led by Abu Musad al-Barnawi, who some believe to be Muhammad Yusuf's son. Uh, and then I think there are some other even smaller ones, but it was really these main two. And this is good because it weakened their power, um, their total power, but it was bad in that it made locating the Chibok girls even more difficult because they had been split up. Obviously, we are focusing on the Chibok girls in this story because that's who we have the most information on. Um, and also because it was, I mean, just like the first time that it had been that massive of a number. Um, but it wasn't the first or the last time that they had kidnapped young girls or boys or adults or anyone. Well, I mean, if the government was ready to overlook mm-hmm. 270, whatever, mm-hmm. who's to say they haven't overlooked 20, 30, yep. 10, 1 in the past? Exactly. Uh, it just, I mean, Bogor Hamid kidnapped thousands of other people. David Otto, the chief negotiator, said that the international community was not as interested in the other kids who had been kidnapped because they weren't trending. Like, and he's saying that as a critique, not being like, they're not trending, so I don't care. But he was saying, like, he's concerned about the other people that are <laughs> kidnapped. Oh, and he's right. And he's, he's absolutely right. right. They're it's the not same trending, when, so they don't care. What's her face? Oh, my God. I'm so dumb. I can't even remember her name. Like, two weeks ago, that girl oh, who got murdered. Yep. And, but it's like, are we talking about all the, like, missing all the other mis- indigenous, yeah. you know, black women, you know, women of color who have just been murdered and yeah. they're just, nobody gives a shit? Right. Because exactly. they're not trending. Exactly. And so because... Not that that white girl's life wasn't worth it. No, but it's, it's worth true. It, but yeah. it's like, we, we focus, we tend to, our brains tend to focus on one thing. Right. And then we can't see the bigger picture. And I'm at fault, too. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to point the finger. Like, no, I'm no, no. We all are. Yeah. yeah. So the problem is, like, again, the government is not feeling as pressured to negotiate for any of these other people that are kidnapped. Um, and if they were released or escaped, there is no rehabilitation plan for them. They were not granted access to the counseling or the opportunities that the Chibok girls were from various government entities. The inequality that girls who were the same age kidnapped from other schools, I mean, just identical circumstances, but from just like a different raid, were ridiculous. I mean, these other people who were also kidnapped and abused by this terrorist organization were just ignored. I mean, there are literally thousands of other people that were kidnapped but people only tend to focus on the 276. But Dr. Fatima Akilu is trying to fix this problem. She is trying to create equality among these victims. She created the Neem Foundation with her sister, 
And this foundation provides psychological support to survivors of Boko Haram. And she means all survivors, even those who at one point could have been seen as willing participants. She works with wives of former senior members and former members themselves, just anyone who has been affected by this. I mean, wow. even people who have just had family members killed by the group or had their homes or villages destroyed, anyone who has been harmed by this group can come to the Neem Foundation and get help. Dr. Akilu is dedicated to help the thousands of people whose lives have been affected because she says if we don't try and help them now, it will cause generational trauma that will ravage families for decades to come. The Neem Foundation has a program called the Yellow Ribbon Initiative. This is an intensive 12 to 18 month long program which tackles the trauma inflicted by Boko Haram in a few different ways. So first they deal with the ideological impact mm. and critical thinking. So helping people who may have been brainwashed by the group to think for themselves again. And she's like, you know, we also like, we think of brainwashing as in like, I love Boko Haram, but she was like, sometimes no. it's just other things like, you know, people don't like, ask questions or like, like she was like, you know, some people come in and be like, well, Nigeria is not really a country. And she's like, they taught you that. Like, <laughs> it is, cause some of these girls yes, were like 12. They were so young. And like, there are some people who are even younger when they got kidnapped. Right. So like, yeah. So the first part is just like critical thinking and just like helping people think for themselves again. They also, this is a great thing. I think they use sports to help survivors. Um, so she wants to get them physically active because obviously too, like a lot of them are malnourished. They were abused. Like I think that we, like the physical, their physical bodies were also harmed in this, you right. know, obviously. Um, so she introduces sports and she's like, yeah, I want to get them active while also having them engage with other people in a team setting. Cause also one of the things that like cults and terrorist groups sometimes do is like pit you against other people. Right. And it also introduces what Dr. Kilu calls peace curriculum. So settling disagreements that often can come up in sporting events, um, you know, peacefully and resolving them together and she's like that assists in real life you know yeah. and just taking everything that we're learning while getting our bodies healthier you know while getting our brains healthier and i wonder if that has anything to do with like um have you seen the movie invictus no i've never even heard of it um it's the movie about the the south african rugby team that nelson mandela was like promoting like right after apartheid and there were like um black or bantu africans on this new team uh -huh. and it was just getting the country behind a team mm. that had black africans on it and like yeah. some of the white players not wanting to play against this team the team i guess it was from johannesburg i guess because it would be the capital city wherever Nelson Mandela was, but not wanting to play against the team or taking extra hard hits on yeah. like the black athletes, but sports were like one of the contributing factors of the country, like being able to come back together again. Yeah. Because and legitimately like Baltimore's a fucked up city, but everybody loves the Ravens and the Orioles. <laughs> yes, we do. And we all hate the Steelers. And the yes. Colts. We have like, this like big connection. Yeah. Like sports can be aggressive and terrible, but they can also be community building, which right. is a really 
complicated situation, but it's complicated, but you <laughs> learn a lot from it and yeah. you, you can like form connections. It's like, I think it's the way that this is going to sound crazy for people, especially since it's veterans say that we're recording this, but it's the way that in war you, you form bonds with the people in yeah. your like, yeah, crew, you yeah, know, absolutely. like your army corps, like they're, yeah. they're your companion for this like struggle. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I love sports. Uh, and war. I just, yeah, and, <laughs> and war. Um, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, they also offer classes in skill acquisition and literacy. So, like, uh, teaching them very practical things. You mean college and career yeah. readiness? Yeah. College and career? Exactly. And then, of course, there's the psychological component, which offers trauma support, including talk and art therapy to people. I mean, she's doing it all. After they, uh, oh, and then like while people are in the program, it's not like a set program and you're done exactly. Every single person who comes through this program is gauged on a scale because they recognize that the same amount of treatment doesn't work for every person. Wow. (laughs) Just amazing. It's so important to have so important freaking doctors doing things. (laughs) Um, and then after they finish the program, the foundation helps them get to their next step, whether that be a career or school, like you were talking, like college or career readiness. They don't just train them and then send them off and say, good luck. They are with them until they really feel like this person is like back on their feet and okay. Right. Which is so like the follow through is so crucial. Since 2016, about 7,500 people have gone through this program. And 20,000 more have just received basic trauma support from them. So it's not just this program. They have a ton of programs available for people. They also have mobile clinics called Counseling on Wheels that go out to reach people in rural locations that can't make it to the center. Why? Because mental health is important. (laughs) That's great. I need a counselor on wheels. God. Dad. Dr. Kilu making just the world a better place like we have like uber counselors i feel like that would be great like seriously but i just i don't know i think that she's just doing such good work because she doesn't want to leave anyone behind you know because in the u.s like during covid people couldn't get to counseling Mm. but we have video chat we have zoom like we Mm. can video chat with counselors or whatever um but like she's like no these are poor people in rural areas like we need to go to them do you know what it makes me think of it makes Mm -hmm. me think of like when people um outside of a community try to come in and fix a problem that Mm -hmm. you're having but it's like you don't know what i want or need you mean the problem with like a lot of uh charitable organizations yeah yeah exactly because they're run by like wealthy people of a different ethnicity from a different country that don't have similar ideologies and it's like well you're giving me these things but these aren't the things that i need nor the things that support what i want in my life so now i'm have extra trash thank you for this extra trash that now i have to get rid of well i always think of um when i i worked for that nonprofit for a little while and they did international patient safety and they're very clear they're like we don't go over there and drop off a bunch of hand sanitizer and they're like we go over there and we teach them how to make it's that's classic fish Mm -hmm. saying or whatever they're like we teach them how to make it so that they can replenish their own supplies and like you know it's just 
you have to invest in like you're saying like what they need versus like surface level issues you know it's like people are dying at really high rates in this hospital because of bacteria and there are a lot of problems so like let's address them and fix the root cause of the problem of like whatever but like anyways so like i like there's this um pretty famous like uh change theorist who like you have to read books by him if you get a degree in education or psychology but he like somebody went down and like all the to like um central america and all these people in this village were getting sick because there was bacteria in the water uh when they were cooking and they were like oh this is easy everybody just boil the water and then just left and it was like (laughs) well actually like to them, boiling water was, like, against their cultural, like, understanding of how to do things. And it, like, there was a lot of negativity that was connected with boiling water. So it was, like, you didn't attack the root of the problem at all. You didn't, you didn't, look, at the com- the, you didn't look at the problem with a nuanced vision. Right. Because also, like, what if they don't have, red- like, easy access to firewood? Right. Like, what if making... <laughs> A fire is actually a lot more complicated than you are giving it credit for. Like, look at the bigger problem. You can't walk into a community that you have no connection with and say, just boil the water. Right. The word just, just. is an insult. It's an insult. I was just thinking Harry Potter and the Sacred Test talked about the word Did just. They? they talked about the word just, how it minimizes. I think this, I can't remember exactly because it was a couple of weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> but they were talking about how, like, using the word just can kind of minimize things and be like, it's just this, it's just that. And it's like, to you, it might not feel like just that. It might yeah. feel like all of it. Like it's, um, <laughs> it's something, so teachers deal with the word just a lot, which is why I brought it up. We get, we have big problems with the word just because they'll be like, okay, so you just need to contact all the kids parents yeah. that have C's, <laughs> just the ones with C's. And then it'll be in the next week. It's like, okay, so you just have to like, put a little pink dot next to all the kids who winked with their left eye today. Like just, and it's again, like, it's simple. <gasps> it's simplifying, uh, people's experiences too. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like I have 150 like, kids yeah. that I'm dealing with. You want me to just, there is no just, there's not a just, there's no just, there's only do. <laughs> right. Whatever. What uh, just like I'm already doing <laughs> five. Th- and that's the way it is with a lot of service jobs. I don't want to minimize other service jobs like mail carriers right now. Oh that are my like, gosh. It's like, it's like just deliver mail till 9 PM. <laughs> <laughs> just deliver all the mail. They're like, there's so much of it <laughs> to the nurses. Just can convince people yeah that their germs exist right <laughs> just, just tell them that but anyway yes this is a very it's a very serious thing that she's dealing with because there are she's doing a task and giving people what they need yeah. instead of what the community perceives that they need yeah well because it's the whole problem of this whole story it's like just bring our girls back it's like okay that's not like there's a whole bigger story. It's like, yeah, get those girls back. Get everyone back. Deal with this terrorist organization, which is really complicated. And also provide help to them when they get out of it. I also hate the whole vibe, which I know that the U.S. and other free countries have. That it's like we don't negotiate with terrorists. It's like, well, if that was your fucking kid, I bet right, you'd negotiate exactly. with terrorists. So don't tell yep. me what you don't do. Yeah. That's a child. Yeah. 
And the fact of the matter is that there are still people who have not been able to access help because they are still captives of Boko Haram. I mean, more than a hundred of the Chibok girls have never been accounted for and their families have no idea whether they're alive or not. So we're going to end this episode on a badass woman, Aisha Bakari Gombi, who is the queen huntress of Boko Haram. Aisha has been hunting since she was a little girl. She started with her dad. And even though she had a ton of brothers, he was like, you're the best hunter and gave her his rifle. Get it. I know. And in 2014, after Boko Haram took over her village, she decided to sell her sewing machine, which is the only her like way of making money. And she picked up her rifle and started hunting them. A terrorist named Bulayaga is her main target. She leads a group of over 100 soldiers into the bush to search for members of Boko Haram and capture them for the Nigerian military to deal with. She also actively hunts for kidnapped children and tries her best to bring them back home. At six feet tall, she towers over most of the people that she's in charge of, so everyone knows exactly who she is. And she often says that Boko Haram knows who she is and they're afraid of her. Some people who maybe initially disapproved of her saying like, why is she out there? She should be home with Vigilary. her family. Vigilante justice, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they now cheer for her and give her whatever they can to fund her mission. She's like a real life superhero. She really is. That's how people see her. Money and resources are scarce, and anytime she wants to go out on a mission, she has to actively fundraise just to buy fuel for the trucks and the bikes and the bullets. And a lot of her money, unfortunately, comes from these small villages that don't have much to begin with, but they try and buy her the things that she needs to go out because these are people who have been driven out of their villages by Boko Haram. And they need to go back and tend to their farms and just go home. But they can't because they're there. So they hire her and she goes and she tries to capture people, get information for them from them and like trying to drive them out and clear the area so that people can come home. The Nigerian military cannot fund her and her hunters because they can't even really fund themselves. Mm -hmm. There's still a problem with corruption and in 2015, the National Security Advisor was arrested for stealing $2 billion from the military budget. But Aisha keeps going. She does everything she can to battle Boko Haram one mission at a time, all while taking care of her family at home. Mm. Which is an incredible thing because I watched a little documentary on her and she was talking about how sad she was. Because obviously like, Boko Haram makes her sad and angry. But also she um, was like, yeah, my first husband left me because I was barren. She was like, I couldn't have children. And that's like a really big deal here. She was like, but you know, like I see my mission is bigger than that. Like trying to rescue other people's children, you know, and if I can do that, then I feel fulfilled. Oh, my God. She's like freaking Black Widow. I know. And then at the end of it, uh, the documentary person wrote like, during the mission that we were filming her on after this, she found out she was pregnant. Oh, 
so now she has a baby and with her new husband and her new husband is so supportive of her he said he was so proud of her he was like well her success is my success like and so now like she has her family and her family that supports her and what she's doing which is fucking taking down Boko Haram any way that she can and she's inspired other women to stand up for themselves and defend themselves and their families and their villages from this horrible group even though Boko Haram have fractioned and weakened a bit they are still a threat to the safety and the well-being of the people of Nigeria in April of this year in 2021 they killed 11 civilians with grenades they are not gone they have caused irreparable harm to countless families in Nigeria so I want to remind people that they are still active they are still a threat but also just thanking the women who are standing up for the Chibok girls and all of the other people who are affected by this terrorist group and other terrorism around the world. Mm. And that's uh, the story. It's like a little unsatisfying. It's like, I really don't know what's happened to a lot of them. No, I think, I think it's satisfying in its mission. You know what I mean? Like it's a good, it's a good path to take. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm, I'm, interested to see what we have to say about these two (laughs) stories together in a little segment we like to call just the two of us or the hundreds of us i I mean mean, countless people can we start with the just the word girl Mm-hmm. I like the documentary I watched was called four little girls. And I just kept saying like these little girls and then bring back our girls is the yeah. hashtag. And I think girl like gives you this idea of innocence and smallness, yeah. but actually it's the power that got people to rise up. People yeah. were furious. Yeah. How could you do this to girls, which you could take as an insult or you could take as a, don't do this to fucking girls. Yeah, exactly. Like I wrote in my notes that like there's never enough attention being paid until kids and especially little girls are involved because I do think that there is this societal like even like I feel like sometimes like little boys get kind of cast to the wind. Mm, Like, yes, I do feel like little girls are seen as like, no, like you don't hurt them. Like, you know, which again, like you're right. Like a part of me is like, the reason reason that we're set up like that is because the masculinity of a family, a dad wants to protect his baby girl and he wants to further his son. So the only time men understand that a child being taken is bad is when it happens to a girl. Yeah. So what we're seeing is that a woman is in terror every time Mm -hmm. a baby is taken. But when we can get attention of men, it's because their daughter has been taken. No, that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just. And now that also that same thing has been passed down but Mm -hmm. i think is different for black women in the united states Mm -hmm. it's raise your daughters love your sons right because you your daughters will live but your black sons they will die 
They're right. going to be killed by the police. They might be thrown in jail mm -hmm. for things they didn't do. Yeah. Like, so, and I wrote that down too, that it is so important that I know that we are a feminist podcast, but feminism is about equality across the board and children are a big love of mine and young boys in are taken by terrorist organizations to be militant soldiers. They have their arms and limbs cut off if they're not doing the right thing. And young black men in the United States are targeted. End oh, of yeah. discussion. Targeted. And I cannot imagine being a mother dealing with any of that. No, absolutely not. Well, and especially because the problem is so much bigger. We're talking about systemic problems. Like I wrote about like, Again, we're talking about decades apart, but still the same systematic problems of like, you have like Birmingham versus like Chibok, like these small places that people aren't paying attention to until things get out of control. Because as I said in the beginning, like Chibok is in Northern Nigeria. So they're like Southern Nigeria seems to be a lot further away from the violence. I don't know for, like, again, I, well, it's very did coastal. all this research in no, a week. It's also like, very coastal, like mm -hmm. southern Nigeria. I mean, this is going to come off bad, but that corner is like where the slave trade took place. So mm -hmm. you have a lot of very wealthy families that still live in that hook around the water. Yeah. And like, so the, the southern part, like from what I was understanding, like that's kind of like the Christian part. Mm -hmm. And they seem a little bit more separated. And like Chibok is a village in this northern part that is predominantly Muslim. And, and like towards, normally getting towards the Sahara. Yeah. And like normally that wasn't a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until this group came in and fucked it up. And then you have the bigger entities outside of that. There are layers to all of these problems. And I was thinking about like the U.S. versus Nigeria and like not wanting to get involved. Mm. Where Like there were those bombings before this church bombing that took the lives of these girls that warned them. them they that knew everybody they knew. knew that this terrorist group had access easy access to dynamite and they were ready to use it against black civilians and they chose not to do anything about it and i think about that with like you had two military bases that were warned that there's a big raid coming into Chibok. Like you need to do something and they did nothing. And it's how important, like it leads me to think in terms of the government. And we can see this in so many ways with the healthcare system, mm -hmm. with the debt crisis, with the COVID awareness, so many things with public school systems, libraries, yeah. whatever that the government is only aware of the hashtag. Yeah. And obviously the hashtag is like a placated term, but they're only aware of what actually is going to get them elected at that given moment. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily matter if an impoverished community is really, really struggling. Put a yeah. bandaid on it, put a bandaid on it, put a bandaid on it. But people are bleeding out. Yeah. We can't have a bandaid for people who are bleeding to death. It's not yeah. going to work. Well, and I think like equating like a hashtag to a bandaid is kind of an apt like comparison because like are band-aids important? Yeah. Band-aids are super important. Yeah, we need you know, them. we need them, but they're not the only thing we need, mm. you know? And it's like one of the problems I have with just like internet activism. It's like, is it, it is so important, but when people only turn to that, it's like when people are like, 
well, we're here on Twitter. So like, I want to make sure that like, you know, we're talking about who actually created this hashtag, which is an important conversation, but it's not the only conversation to be having, you know? And I was like, can we get the conversation back to the 276 missing girls? Like, (laughs) you know, and it's like, again, it's like, I do think that like the internet is important for raising awareness because we probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of those girls back if it wasn't for the pressure that was being no, put on the that's government. Absolutely and correct. Like you're saying, we wouldn't maybe we wouldn't have gotten to like the Civil Rights Act if it wasn't for all of these horrible events. And I unfortunately do think that it is often like women and little girls who are sacrificed on the way to things getting done literally sacrificial lambs yeah like absolutely is what it is and i like i am in so much pain that it is places that women work want to be and exist that get this type of terrorism so like schools and churches are where it's, and I mean, it, the only way we could make this any more traumatic is if you add a hospital, right? right. Because yeah. then you have all of the women workers who are doing public service, who are helping children, who are bringing people in. It's just so culturally worldwide schools, churches, hospitals are where our women are and where our yeah. children are. And you're yeah. not allowing that to be a space of safety because you're not protecting it yeah well and i I wrote that down like places where you're supposed to feel safe places that are kind of supposed to be off bounds but with terrorist group they don't care who they hurt they don't care what spaces are sacred and what spaces are not and that's what instills i think the most fear you know what i'm saying because like if you think about like the classic like old school like bonnie and clyde criminals they're like oh no our thing is like banks like you know we wouldn't go in and like rob a church like robbing a church was like no i wouldn't do that i'm not a monster like, it's like you know? against the like, geneva accords right like, don't like, go after the citizens yeah but these people they they don't care who they hurt and then i also think it's interesting that we talked about splinter groups in both of our stories about mm. people who are like this isn't going far enough it's like you guys are already crazy so like you want it to be crazier than this you want to take the kkk and sharia law yeah and splinter <laughs> off of it what's happening where even are we like right. that's like a alternate universe yeah exactly and i just like i also was thinking a lot about like how there are so many more victims beyond these events and like the generational trauma that occurs like one of the people i was listening to she was like I couldn't be in a large group of people for a long time. She was like, people invited me to their weddings. And she was like, I couldn't do it because being in a room with a group of people, she was like, all I would be thinking about is like, they know we're here. They're coming for us. Mm -hmm. It's like, she literally couldn't be in a large group. And I feel that with the surviving families of like, some of them just didn't want to go to church anymore. Yeah. Like, why would I make myself a target? And why would you like these very religious families? The South is very religious. Mm -hmm. The African American community in the South is even more religious because it's how people dealt with issues like slavery and like the Jim Crow laws. So you have this generational religious idea. And then 
you have children who are now the baby boomers. Now mm-hmm. they're our parents' age. These kids who died are the age of Katie and Maya's parents mm. who were pushing back against their parents and saying, I don't want to go. And yeah. that was very weird back then mm-hmm. to not want to go. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine setting foot in church again after seeing my sister blown up. Yeah. Blown up in front of my face and now I'm blind in one eye and you want me to go back to church? Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think that counseling services Mm. are so important because I don't know if like, again, it's also hard because with a lot of these communities, especially in the South, like church was where you went to feel safe, to feel heard, to get some form of counseling. And then that is an unsafe territory for you. I was um, thinking about this a lot today because I don't know if you know the comedian Michelle Buteau, but she, I heard her tell a story today about how she was a news editor in New York on 9-11. She was like, I was editing the footage to be put on. Like, that was my job. That's terrible. Which I is like, I, I hate it. And like, how many times do you have to, I mean, yeah. I know how many times I have to listen to our annoying voices. I, yeah. I can't imagine <laughs> how many times you have to watch a plane fly into a tower just to like get it on the news. Yeah. And she was like. And I was, had to make the decision, like, do I put the footage on the air of these people jumping, jumping out, out of the, the building? Buildings. Like, God, I can't. making that decision, doing that. And she was like, I was literally had just moved there in February. And that happened in September. She's like, I was fresh in New York, and this was my job now. And, like, the news company or whatever came by, and they offered counseling services to everyone who worked there. They were like, mm. just go to therapy we'll pay for it which is not an option for a lot of people and like i wish it was an option for these families i wish that i mean again dr keeler is doing her best to get it to everyone i think my big takeaway from this episode is that trauma is university is like universal yeah but mental health is not yeah no it's so true yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. So disheartening, but yeah. I like I'm really thankful that you got to bring me this story today because I don't know that I would have sat down and done it unless somebody did it for me. Yeah. Well, and it's also hard because I was thinking like I have obviously been very emotional this week, but I almost feel like my story makes you feel more numb than mm-hmm. emotional. Mm-hmm. You're like, what the fuck yeah. is going on? Like, I just um I could like with my kids are almost exactly the age. Well, Eliza's exactly the age of Denise and Caroline is about to turn 12 and the other girls were 14. So it's like, I just kept picturing in my head, like what would happen if they went to school or church one day and then I came home and they were gone. Yeah. Like that's not an acceptable image to have. And unfortunately it's an acceptable not acceptable, but a common thing that happens to people of color in this country yeah, on a regular basis. And it's something that happens to people all over the world. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, are you ready to toast all of these amazing yeah. young girl women? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, Ali, who would you like to toast this evening? So I, I really want to focus on the idea of tonight. Like mm-hmm. I am sitting 
right here in this warm, beautiful house. And there are little kids in cages in Texas. And there are little girls crying in their bedrooms because of what they saw on social media. And there are little girls that are cowering in closets because of domestic violence and sexual abuse. And there are missing indigenous little girls on like reservations that have never been found. Mm -hmm. And there are little girls as I am speaking right now, married to men across this world and being sexually abused. And my toast is entirely, entirely for them because they feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and it literally is. Yeah. So I just, (sighs) these little babies, they don't fucking deserve this. No, they don't deserve it. Mm. Um, Who would you like to toast? I'm going to toast the women who are dealing with unbelievable trauma and to the women who are helping them. I was thinking a lot about uh, obviously Dr. Akilu, who is working so hard to get people help for things that are really complicated and have layers. And some days you're like, yeah, I'm totally over it. And other days you aren't. And it's okay to flip flop and make that change. And it's okay to be fine some days and not others. Like it's, I don't know. And I think about my cousin, Emily, who is literally a personal trainer, who is, I think she calls it trauma informed personal training, who is like literally helping people like we're saying with the sports thing, like move their bodies and exercise in a way that like is mentally safe for them, which I think is so, it's such important work. So just to the, yeah, the people who are dealing with it and the people who are helping them. Yeah, for real. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. All right. Now, on a lighter note, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So it's actually, there's a lot of things that I've just been doing a spattering Mm -hmm. of pop culture things. I haven't been able to, like, link my claws into anything. Yeah. I was reading, like, a book, and then I stopped reading it, and I was watching a show, and then I stopped watching it, and... I I've just felt all over the place. So I I think I my number one thing right now is that like in the holidays everybody's crazy and I want to give people the permission to be like I need to walk away. Yeah. And be quiet. Like yeah. because I was listening to a podcast the other day in the car like with one headphone in. I had like an eye and uh, um iPod or AirPod. AirPod in one ear because of course I'm going to listen for sirens in the other. Ear. Right. So I'm like driving and I'm listening to the AirPod and I just like took it out and threw it across the car. Yeah. I was just like I need this moment. And I know I feel like I promote silence very often, but I don't yeah. want to promote silence. I just want to promote the idea that like you can bounce back and forth. Like I was reading a book 
I really like it. It's called Red Rising. It was great. I was watching a show with Jake and Marjorie. It was really great. We're re-watching Tiger King right now because we're trying to... (laughs) I was like, we were like, you know what would be really fun if we just like (laughs) re-watched and like felt like, you know, because now we know what's coming. Right. Um, And maybe I'm promoting Carol Baskins. Maybe that's it. My promotion is for Carol Baskins alone. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) What are you loving in pop culture? All right. So Casey and I have started a show that I heard about. We hadn't watched yet. It's called Dave. Have you heard of this show? No. (laughs) So it is like a semi-autobiographical show about Dave Bird, who is the rapper Lil Dicky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) He is this white Jewish guy from Philadelphia, and it's about him trying to, like, make it as a rapper in L.A. And his whole kind of shtick is that he's got like a messed up penis. Like <laughs> in what way? In a lot of ways. Uh, you kind of have to watch <laughs> like really like, like the this first scene, show? the first scene of the show is him at a doctor's office, and he goes, I'm going to show it to you, but just be prepared. It's fucked up. He has like two holes where peas come. there was like some problem when he was born and he had to get like multiple surgeries and like but that's his thing and i kind of love it that he's like really claiming it and he's like yeah i'm gonna rap (laughs) messed up penis. i'm the penis guy yeah he's the the, penis guy i mean all guys are penis Uh, guys yeah most guys but hashtag not all men I, it's a really good, it's a really funny. It's so, it's not safe for work, not safe for anyone, um, no, just never watch it. But (laughs) there is, I will say though, it's really funny. And then there are, there are moments that I've cried. Like there is one episode that's all about like bipolar disorder. And I was sobbing. Like they it was so good. So anyways, uh, yeah, Dave, it's on Hulu or FX on Hulu, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really good. Listen, go find Dave and his mess up penis <laughs> on this full woman podcast. I just want to know what's going on. All, all I'm about so the penis. curious. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but anyways, other than that, uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you could pop over to iTunes and give us a rate and especially a review, that would be great. We haven't had a review in months. Come on people. So yeah, go over and share your thoughts on the show. We would love it. And yeah, follow us everywhere. We post the cocktails every Tuesday. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere. I mean, we might be the nicest people you've ever met. I hope so. Met? So, um, (laughs) but yeah, but we love you. We appreciate you listening. And as we like to say on this show, well-behaved women know how to polish their silver. Yeah, they do. Uh, I know how to polish handbells, but that's a whole different story. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Oh, and they rarely make history. Oh, I I always forget to say the second part. All right. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.